Easter is about a lot of things. It is about family, and it is about eggs, and it's about lilies, and Easter is about candy. Does anybody here have some favorite Easter candy? I remember back when I was a kid, uh, the, the, the candy that I always wanted for Easter was the Cadbury egg. Remember that? That had that, that, that nice chocolate shell, and you could break the thing open, and inside was that gooey, sugary weirdness. And, and my mom would never get me that because it was always too expensive. So we were stuck with the peeps that you got at the dollar store. But I, I was looking this week and I did see that Subway had joined up with Cadbury Egg to create this delectable treasure. It is a Subway sandwich with a Cadbury Egg melted in the middle, which that's just immoral, isn't it? So Easter is about a lot of things. It is about candy, it's about eggs, it's about lilies, it's about Easter dresses, it's about family and Easter ham and whatever. But you know, at its heart, before Easter is about anything else, it is about an event in cosmic history. Jesus of Nazareth, who was put through the rigors of crucifixion, whose heart stopped beating, whose brain activity ceased, whose corpse was sealed in a tomb, was raised physically and bodily from the dead on the third day, never to die again, raised in a transformed physical body. And you know, the, the early Christians always said that this was not simply just another miracle. You know, I remember when my kids were little, uh, one of my daughters, she asked me, she said, Daddy, Daddy, what's a miracle? You know, and she was three or four years old, and I was racking my brain how to describe a miracle to a three or four-year-old. And uh, my other daughter, Audrey, she spoke up, and she says, ah, Dad, that's easy. A miracle is when God does something fancy, you know? <laughs> but you know... Um, the resurrection of Jesus was more than simply a fancy trick. It was the event whereby the creator of all things had broken into this world in order for new creation to begin. For the very kingdom of God, of peace and life and justice and hope to break in right into the midst of the kingdoms of darkness. And, and you know, this, this message, this news of Easter has spread throughout the world and it has transformed cultures and communities and lives and it's traveled all the way uh, to, to Los Angeles County and it's changed many of your lives today. And so the resurrection of Jesus is the very hope, it's the foundation of our faith. But although this is the very center of our faith, although it stands at the very heart of our faith, I wonder if there's anybody in the house who has ever had a hard time believing it. You know, uh, last week, my wife and I were at dinner with some friends of ours, and uh, Greg and Nancy, and they're dear friends, and, and they're, they're very unchurched, and, and Greg is a secular Jew, and he lost his dad recently, and he was talking to me about how he was talking to his rabbi, and the rabbi said, you know, your father is going to live on through your memories and as you keep his stories alive and as you carry on in, in your own life, kind of their, his own best practices. And, uh, and he turned to me and he said, Josh, he said, what do you think will happen after death? Do you think my dad lives on? And, you know, I found myself at the dinner table trying to talk about the, you know, the, the love of God and about the bodily resurrection. And, and, and I just found myself thinking, like, this sounds weird. And I wonder if you've ever had that thought. You know, am I crazy? You know, is all of this really true or am I just making this up because 
I want it to be true. You know, this stands at the very heart of our faith, but I wonder if you've ever struggled with doubt. I wonder if you've ever struggled to believe this news. Now, of course, there are some of you who have intellectual problems, and you wonder how this whole thing works out. And maybe some of you even, you know, you, you grew up in church, you went to camp, you had an experience, maybe you were even baptized, uh, but, but you went to college or maybe graduate school, and there was some smart professor that raised some questions for you, some doubts, and you went home and you found that the Sunday school answers just couldn't stand up to the very real adult questions you were facing, and you walked away. And of course, some of you, you know, maybe you were invited by, uh, to, today to church by a friend and you're just like, I, like, do people really believe this in the 21st century that somebody was raised from the dead? And of course, even if you've been around church for a while, you know, you can struggle to believe. You know, there was a, a great tome uh, on what it means to inhabit a secular age written by a philosopher uh, a few years back called Charles Taylor. And one of the points that he makes in this book is that the very... The very water we swim in, the very air we breathe in a secular age is such that even if you have faith, you can find yourself at times haunted by doubts. And uh, one, one, another philosopher commented on this, he put it like this, he said, look, even as faith endures in our secular age, believing doesn't come easy. And I wonder if anybody here can relate to that statement, believing doesn't come easy. Faith is fraught. Confession is haunted by an inescapable sense of its contestability. We don't believe instead of doubting, we believe while doubting. We are all Thomas now. Now, I know we're not all Thomas. Some of you, you know, you never, maybe because of your temperament, maybe because of your experience in life, maybe because you lie to yourself, you just don't wrestle with doubt. But you know, there's a whole lot of us that know what it means to struggle with doubt and I want you to know this Easter that you are not alone. And so today what I want to do is I want to invite you to reflect together on the most famous doubter of them all, a Doubting Thomas. And we're going to kind of enter his story. And what we're going to see today is how Thomas's doubts, his faith that was fraught with doubt actually led to a deep and an abiding confession of faith. And we're gonna see how even doubters can come to legitimate, deep, and life-transforming faith. So um, before we begin, though, I just wanna make a, a point about Thomas. So Thomas sometimes gets a bad rap. Uh, we've even given him a name. He's Doubting Thomas. You know, how would you like for the rest of your life to be always defined by that, doubt, that adjective doubting? And it's really not fair. You know, Thomas, Thomas was the very best of the disciples. I mean, he was, he was a man of courage. There's this moment in the Gospel of John where Jesus is going to Jerusalem and his disciples are freaked out because uh, they know that people seek his life in Jerusalem. He might get killed. And they're like, no, let's not go to Jerusalem. And Thomas says, no, let's go to Jerusalem with him to die. He was willing to die for his faith, you know, and uh, Thomas was always asking the great questions, you know, he was always honest. You know, Jesus would say things like, you know, very profound things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Thomas would be like, Jesus, what do you mean you're the way? And, you know, like, what, do you, what does that even mean? Like, where are you going? And how can we know the way, you know? And, and so he, he was an honest guy, and yet here he is, honest and courageous, and yet he struggled with doubt. And let's notice how his story begins uh, verse 19, 
of John chapter 20, it says, on the evening of that day, speaking of the day of the resurrection, this is the first Easter Sunday. On the evening of that day, so this is the very evening of the first, of the first Easter, on the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. Now stop there. So uh, this is the evening, and in the morning, the completely unexpected happened. The women arrived at the tomb, and it was empty. And the angel spoke. He said, he is not here. He is risen. And then John and Peter get there, and they see the empty tomb, and the, the linens have been folded up. And, and they don't even know what to make of this. And they go back. And then Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. And he has this conversation. She goes back and shares it with the disciples. And so now it's later in the evening. And they're talking together about the events of the day. And it is a mixture of both fear as well as wonderment. They're, they're afraid because, you know, it's, it's, it's only Sunday and just Friday. Their leader was put to death. And they're afraid. They're like, if the leaders, if the, if the leaders of the Jews find us, they might kill us too. And so they have the doors locked. Uh, but but, but they're, they're talking about what happened and what could this mean and all of this. And they're talking all about Jesus. And all of a sudden, they look over and there he is. It says, and Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, he gets all hippie on them, peace, you know? I, I like it. He's like, peace be with you. Relax, relax. And then he said this, and he showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus reveals himself to his disciples, and they, and they were full of joy. But, but it turns out that not all of them were, because one of them was missing, uh, it says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. I don't know why he was called the twin. He was just called the twin. We're not told that he had a twin. It'd be a little bit awkward if that was your nickname and you didn't have a twin, right? Like, what's your, I'm the twin. Like, well, who's the other one? You know, I don't know. But now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. You know, look, Thomas, if there's one day not to miss church, you know, this incidentally is a good reason why you want to not miss church. Some of you, you only come on Easter Sunday. You should come on other days because there are other times Jesus shows up and you might miss him, you know? And uh, so, so Jesus came, stood with them. I mean, Jesus, he was not with them when Jesus came. So the disciples said, look, we have seen the Lord. And I just think that must have triggered some serious FOMO, you know? <laughs> like, my goodness, I, gosh, I, I'll not, you know, I can just imagine... Here on out, Thomas, is, he doesn't leave the disciples' side. Like, wherever they go, he's there. And a week later, he's there with his disciples again. And actually, before we get there, though, he said to them, he said, look, unless I see his hands, in his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. He says, I will never believe. He's like, look, uh, Peter, I love you, but I think you're crazy. You know, John, love you, but, you know, I think you've seen a ghost. You know, the rest of y'all, I, I love you, but no. You know, like, dead people don't rise unless I see his hands. If I put my finger in his hands and, and put my hand in, in, the, in the scar on his side, he says, I will never believe. In Greek, it's a double negative. It is, I will never, ever believe. But do you notice how emphatic he is? 
I will never, you know? Why is he so emphatic? I mean, why doesn't he believe the testimony of the disciples? Well, the answer is obvious. Because Thomas is like you and I. He knows how things go in the world. He knows that in this world, in reality, in this old world, all people die and dead people stay dead. You know, there's a fallacy we have, uh, I think, in our modern age. We think, oh, you know, those ancient people, they were so much more gullible than modern people are. You know, they were so naive. They believed in resurrections. No, they didn't. You know, people didn't get, like, we don't have higher IQs than people back then. You know, they knew what we know, that all people die and dead people stay dead. So Thomas is like, look, I don't believe you guys. And unless I see it, I will not believe. Now, I, I imagine for Thomas, though, this is more than an intellectual problem. You know, it was Blaise Pascal who said that reason, or, or that the heart has reason for which reason does not know. And I can imagine Thomas, part of him, he is emotionally let down. He has been disappointed. He put all of his hopes in Jesus, and he watched all of his hopes die on Friday. And you know what it's like to have your hopes die on Friday. You know, and you think it's too vulnerable and it's too risky to try to hope again. I have already been let down. I prayed and there was no end. And, and how can I hope again? I am afraid to hope. But whatever the case, intellectual, emotional, Thomas here is struggling with doubts. But look what happens next. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. He wasn't going to leave their side. And although the doors were locked, Jesus comes, he shows up again, he says the same words, peace be with you. But look what happens next. Notice Jesus goes immediately up to Thomas, and he said to him, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Thomas in verse 27 said, unless I see his hands, unless I see the marks in his hands and touch the mark in his hands on the wound in his side, I will never believe. And Jesus says, is that what you need? Come, Thomas. Notice the incredible compassion Jesus has towards doubters. Now, I want to stand back, and I just want to make three observations about this story. And I want you to see in this story something about doubt, something about faith, and then something about Jesus. Number one, I want you to see something about doubt. You know, I came across this image this week, and I just love this depiction of Jesus and Thomas. Because Jesus in this depiction, doesn't he just look so compassionate? And Jesus, when he meets Thomas, he doesn't shame him. Uh, he doesn't do uh, what, you, what happens in sometimes in church where you're, you're made to feel like you can't really be a good Christian if you're struggling with doubts. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Instead, Jesus invites him in. And I think, I think what we see here is something about doubt. And I, and I think what we're seeing about doubt is in this story, doubt is not an enemy of faith. Doubt is not the opposite of faith. You know, great men and women all throughout the Bible struggle with doubt. And in our honest moments, and if you sit and you'll talk with a seasoned saint, somebody who's walked with Jesus for a very long time, you will encounter people who have experienced seasons of doubt. 
And so doubt is not an enemy of faith. And doubt is not the opposite of faith. You know, listen, the opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is willful unbelief. And what is willful unbelief? You know, uh, there, there's something uh, we call confirmation bias. You know what that is? Uh, that is uh, when you cherry pick the information that confirms what you already believe. And so this last week, my, my wife was telling me about a study of the tremendous health benefits of drinking beer. And I said, that sounds like an incredible scientific discovery. Tell me more, you know? And, uh, but, you know, we tend to cherry pick information that confirms what we already believe. We do this in politics all the time. And of course, we tend to pass over stuff that doesn't confirm what we don't want to believe. And that's willful unbelief is when you ignore the obvious right in front of you because it doesn't fit with what you want to believe. You see, if you came to faith in this truth, you might need to change your life. You might need to adjust everything, and you don't want to adjust everything so it's more comfortable to believe what you're already believing. So you, you, you filter this stuff out, and you only believe this sort of thing. But listen, the opposite of faith is not doubt. It is willful unbelief. It is obstinate unbelief. Listen, what is doubt? Doubt is actually a subcategory of faith because what is it except for the struggle to believe? You know, Oswald Chambers said, doubt is not always a sign you're wrong. It may be a sign that you're thinking. You know, A.J. Swoboda said, to struggle with one's faith is often the surest sign that we actually have one. You know, doubt is often the companion on our journey of faith. And when we're asking questions, it oftentimes leads us to deeper and more profound answers. Listen, let me just say this. Uh, some of you, you get a Sunday school faith when you're growing up. And oftentimes that Sunday school faith does not withstand the real intellectual, the moral, the cultural, the ethical challenges that you face in this culture. And so sometimes you need to deconstruct those old, settled certitudes and assurances. You need to go back and you need to kind of re-question things. Doubt can be good because it can lead you on a search for the truth. Francis Bacon said, if you begin with certainties, you will end in doubts. But if you are content to begin with doubt, you can end with certainty. Now, of course, he was talking about the scientific method, but the same thing is true for a life of faith. Oftentimes, it is people who, who they're just, this is the Pharisees in Jesus' world. It's the religious people who have all of their settled certitudes, and they will not ask hard questions because they feel safe and comfortable and better than everyone else, and they haven't done the hard work of asking real questions. So sometimes, faith, sometimes doubts can actually lead you into a deeper level of faith. Tim Keller, uh, a pastor, author from New York, put it like this. He said, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she has failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. And so doubts 
is not an enemy of faith, but let's just caveat this a little bit. So doubt, doubt is not an enemy of faith if, if what? Doubt is not an enemy of faith if doubt is not used as an excuse to avoid moral clarity and making firm decision. Listen, we can use doubt and endless questions as a mean of, of escaping commitment, of actually remaining in control of a conversation. Have you ever been in a conversation with somebody and you don't want them to uh, be in charge and so you start being the one who's asking the questions? I'm looking at uh, Chase as a lawyer, you know? <laughs> You're the one in charge. You ask the questions, you do the interrogating, and that puts you in a safe place because you never have to take the stand and answer questions yourself about your own vulnerabilities. And so oftentimes we can use doubt and incessant questioning as a way of escaping commitments. And, and let, me just, let me just talk to some of you right now. Uh, some of you, you over the last several years have begun to question the faith of your childhood. And listen, that's a good and healthy thing to do, but let me just give you a caution as a somewhat older, I won't say wiser, but shorter man. Um, <laughs> Average height. Globally, I'm average. Right, Brian? Yeah. Listen, some, imagine yourself driving a car, and you start to hear a weird noise in the engine, and you're just like, the thing is bugging me. And so you pull the car over, and what do you do? You open up the hood, and you go after that thing with a hammer <laughs> to try to fix it. No, you're, you're like, I, I want to, like, is that what you use to fix a car? <laughs> a hammer, yes. No. But, but you start just tearing apart the engine, and you get back in the car, and you feel better. Why? Because the sound doesn't exist anymore. And why? Because you attack the engine. But you know what? You have taken the thing apart, and you have no car left to drive you anywhere. And sometimes if all you go to is deconstruction and doubt and questioning, friends, you will not have a car left to drive your life anywhere. And listen, you have got to live. You have got to find something to build your life on and life is short. And listen, do not discard the old traditions. Do not discard the old stories that have been so transformative in, the, in this world too easily and too lightly, or you may find that you have nothing left to build your life on. And so doubt is not an enemy of faith if it's not used as a means of escape. But let's move on. So let's talk for a minute about faith, what we learn about faith from this text. Jesus doesn't leave Thomas in his doubts. And what does he do? How does he deal with his doubt? He says, look at my hands. He says, see my hands. You know, I love this uh, image of a uh, famous painting of this incident from Caravaggio. And uh, I just love the way they're leaning in and they are looking. And this is what Jesus invites Thomas to do. This is how he deals with his doubt. He says, look, come and take a look. You know, I have had so many people over the years say something like this to me. They say, look, you know, Josh, I wish I could have your faith. But, you know, I'm a person of science. 
And, you know, I think what they're telling me is like, Josh, you know, I wish I was like you. You know, I wish I was like the queen in Alice in Wonderland who had that skill of believing six impossible things before breakfast. Do you guys remember? That's how Alice defeated the Jabberwock. you remember? Okay. That's on you. You need to watch it today. Listen, I just want to talk to you for a minute if you have intellectual issues with the faith. Look, I know it's difficult sometimes to believe. And look, it is always difficult to believe something you don't actually believe is true, right? I mean, it is difficult to convince yourself to believe something that you don't think is true. And there is a widespread impression that faith is simply believing where you know there is no evidence. But friends, that is not the faith we see here, and it's not the faith you find in Christianity. Jesus doesn't say to Thomas, he doesn't say, look, just believe. No, he says, Thomas, see my hands. Look, touch me, Simon, or touch me, Thomas. Listen, you can have faith in things that are mysterious and unknowable, but it is difficult to have faith in things that are unreasonable right? Uh, You can have things, you can have faith in things without absolute certitude. You know, philosophers whose expertise is epistemology will tell us that there is almost nothing in life that you can have absolute certitude on. Of course, you can have faith in things where there is not certitude. And again, you can have faith in things that are unknowable and mysterious. You know, I have faith in my wife, Alicia, and she, to me, often is unknowable and mysterious, you know? (laughs) And uh, I'm sure she finds me unknowable and mysterious at times. Look, faith has a cognitive dimension. Now, it's more than that, but it is not any less than that. And and let's just be clear. Can, Can we just be clear on something? Skepticism doesn't make you an intellectual. You know, Dallas Willard once quipped, we live in a culture that has for centuries now cultivated the idea that the skeptical person is always smarter than the one who believes. You can almost be as stupid as cabbage as long as you doubt, you know? (laughs) But listen, skepticism doesn't make you an intellectual. Study, deep, rigorous, long reflection and study. That makes you an intellectual. But skepticism doesn't make you an intellectual. And can I just rant for a second? It is a shame that here we have a subject of such consequence. Whether or not the power of death has actually been overturned, whether or not the ground for existence, all existence, has actually acted in the world to bring to birth in the world new creation, whether or not you can have hope in the face of death, whether or not you can have life after death, whether or not you can be reunited with loved ones, whether or not after the end of the day, love actually wins. That's what's at stake. And it is a shame to me that a subject of such consequence can be so easily neglected and dismissed so lightly. Listen, The Christian tradition is hands down the most intellectually rigorous tradition. Look, we Christians, we may not be as peaceful as the Buddhists, and we may not be as devout as the Muslims, and we may not be as nice as the Mormons, you know? (laughs) But 
but give us this, you know? Christianity is far and away the most intellectually robust religious tradition. And listen, the, the, res- the evidence for the resurrection and the empty tomb and the post-resurrection experiences and the transformative power of this message and, and the incredible work that it's done in people's lives, like the evidence there is worth investigating. But it is going to take more than simply looking at a few memes or blogs or uh, New York Times bestsellers. You have got to do your homework. You have got to do research. And there's a wealth of good literature, but you, you won't get away from it without doing some hard work. Now, again, don't misunderstand me. I am not saying that the way you come to Christian faith is by locking yourself in a room with lots of books. I mean, that's as good of a, of a recipe to destroy your soul as anything else. You need community. You need to experience God. You need to open your heart in vulnerability and risk to God. So it takes more than that, but it doesn't take less than that. But Jesus says, see my hands. So we've seen something in our story about doubt. Doubt is not the enemy of faith. We've seen something about faith Uh, Faith is not opposed to reason. But the third thing I want you to see in this story is something about Jesus. And it's simple, and it's this. You can trust Jesus. Do you notice in our story that Jesus doesn't simply tell him to examine the evidence? He doesn't simply say, look at my hands He then moves on and he says, stop believing and trust. He says, stop disbelieving and trust me. He actually calls Thomas to a point of decision. He says, you have got, you have got, you have got to make a decision. And listen, after you've done all the research, and after you've, you've wrestled with your doubts, at some point, the, the, the time comes where you have got to land the plane. You know, you can't stay in the air forever. Perennial doubt is no place to live your life. It's nothing on which you can actually build your life. You have got to make a decision. You know, Serene Kierkegaard put it like this. He said, the thing that cowardice fears most is decision. There's too much vulnerability and risk. Listen, don't misunderstand. Faith, it's not the same thing as certitude. Don't think of faith as certitude. Some of you, you think like, I've got to come to a place where I know that I know that I know that this is true. I don't want to be made a fool. I don't want to risk and be vulnerable. I've got to know. But listen, You don't need 100% certitude for 100% commitment. You know, and it's not irrational, it's not unreasonable to make 100% committed decisions when you don't have 100% certitude. You know, I got married when I was 24 and Alicia was 21. There we are. Just little kids. And you know what? On, on our wedding there, there was so much we didn't know. <laughs> there was so much that we, we, we lacked certitude on. Yeah. But you know, on that day, I committed my life to, 
to, to be with Je- to be with Alicia <laughs> and Jesus <laughs> till death do I part. It was all in. It was a hundred percent commitment. Listen, there is almost no decision you will make in life of any consequence on which you will have 100% certitude on. Maybe some mathematical formulas, and that's about it. But listen, none of us, none of us builds our life simply on math. Math is not what makes your heart come alive. Math is not ultimately where you find meaning and satisfaction. Some of you are like, no, it it is. (laughs) There's some therapists I'd like to introduce you to in our congregation. I'm just kidding. I need a therapist. Um, And I don't even think math is at the center of... But listen. Listen, you don't need 100% certainty to make 100% commitment. What you need is confidence. Enough confidence... And the evidence is there. You can study. There's enough to, to, to rest your life on. And, and here's the thing, though, about, about the, the evidence of the resurrection. If Jesus walked out of the tomb, then it means he is still alive. And if Jesus is still alive, then you can meet him today. And if Jesus is still alive, it means he can change your life today. You know, I was talking with uh, Nick, a uh, guy in our church family right here, before the service began. Uh, tomorrow is going to be his two-year anniversary of his sobriety. And, um, and Nick told me this morning, he said, Josh, he says, you can mention that, but don't tell him it's just my two-year anniversary of my sobriety. He said, it's the two-year anniversary from when I, I fell down on my knees before Jesus And he changed my life. And friends, some of you are in that place where you just need to fall down on your knees before Jesus. And, and look, you, you, skepticism, it, it's okay. Doubts, it's okay. if you need to keep being on that journey, that's okay. I respect that. But some of you, you've been on this journey long enough and you need to surrender. You need to decide Jesus invites you to trust him. He calls you to make a decision. Listen, I'm either going to live with hope or I'm going to live with despair. I'm either going to live with love or with indifference. I'm either going to pray or I'm not going to pray. I have got to decide. To be undecided is to be decided. I have got to be guided by some values and desires. I've got to be worshiping or not worshiping. You have got to live. You have got to make choices, and you have got to be guided by some values or desires, and then you have to die. And you have got to give an account of your life. Your life is a ballot either cast for or against God, and to be undecided is to be decided. And I just want to close by saying this. When Jesus said, look at my hands, that was not only evidence of his resurrection. 
It was evidence of divine, infinite love. Made flesh and pierced and scarred by the violent people that God created. Laying down his life in love, not just for friends, but even for enemies, for you and for me. And friends, if there's any hands you can rest your life into, it is these nail-scarred hands. It is the hands of Jesus. You can trust Jesus. You can trust Jesus with your past. You can trust Jesus with your future. You can trust Jesus with your present. You can trust Jesus with your failures and with your successes and with your broken marriage. You can trust Jesus with your broken heart. You can trust Jesus with your broken self and with your addictions. You can trust Jesus. Let's trust in him, amen? amen? Let's pray together. Father, we come to you now and this morning afresh, we want to surrender our lives to your love on full display in your son, Jesus. God, would you enable us afresh this day to build our life, our identity, to ground our hope in your infinite love and in your infinite power on full display in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. God, may you enable us with fresh eyes today to behold the beauty of the risen Lord. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.